0: Welcome on in to the Double Chat Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And we are excited that you are joining us, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you rate us, review us, give us five stars. Come on, man, don't be a hater. Uh, Brett, we are right now in the end of April. It's early spring. Um, starting to uh, get into the, the late spring and summer weather. How are you feeling about it?
1: Uh, felt a lot worse last week whenever I had some allergy stuff, but I'm feeling pretty good right now.
0: Yeah, the pollen is in the air. That's the thing about springtime. We get the pollen in the air and then we get the rain and then the streets just become overflowing with like yellow water. It looks kind of looks like pee, <laughs> like just flowing into the gutters, man. And it's <clears> it's pretty <throat> crazy here uh, in the, the very tree-covered uh,
1: North Carolina. How different is spring experience here than it was in california what do you mean by spring experience
0: in california they don't have seasons they, they don't have seasonal changes in in southern california i mean there's like there's no fall there's not really a winter spring just kind of like instead of temperature being in like the low to mid 60s you go from like the high 60s to low 70s and maybe a little bit of rain and that's about it so don't that get uh, boring? though? Well, yeah. Why do you think I'm here?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I guess you don't get the winter blues, but then you don't get like the awesome uplifting spirit that comes with spring after that. So. Yeah.
0: Well, see, going from I, I grew up in Colorado where we have all four seasons, sometimes in the same day. And it's it, it, it was very different being in Southern California in Long Beach for nine years where the seasons just don't change and then back here i'm like able to uh, experience the changing of the seasons again. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, so should we get into it here? We have uh we have a little bit of a different format for this episode here. Yeah, i'm
1: really excited about it. It's yeah. going to be a it's going to be a treat. We've been asking people to send in questions and now we have a couple.
0: Yeah, yeah, we have two in fact from uh, listener Jason and listener Jake. And uh, we appreciate you guys sending us your uh, feedback. We have the audio from both of you asking your questions, so we're going to be using that uh, throughout the show. But normally, Brett and I go back and forth and we present our theses. Uh, this, this episode uh, is going to be sort of like a triple check. A triple check of the double checkers uh, because you guys are asking us questions and sort of presenting things, uh, arguments maybe that uh, will challenge some of the things that we said in previous episodes. And so instead of a coin flip to determine which one of us goes first, we're going to flip the coin to determine which of you goes first. Brett flipped last time for the two of us. So I guess I'll just go ahead and do the honors of of this flip here. Yeah. Uh, But we need to assign who's going to be heads and who's going to be tails.
1: Um. Let's go, I'm trying to come up with a way to do this, but they both have J names. And Which is
0: more alphabetical?
1: Jake. Jake?
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he'll be heads, how about? Sure. And then Jason will be tails. That sounds good. All right. So we're going to go ahead and flip it here. This is the official flip. And it came up heads. Heads. So uh, so that
1: means Jake will go first.
0: Jake will go first. Yes. And so here is the question that Jake sent to us, at least uh, the, first, the, first the first part portion. of it. The first portion. He
1: has a lot to say, uh, and both of these are mostly about episode 16.
0: Right. And he's, he's going to address what both of us said. He has some things to say to Brett, some things to say to me, um, instead of just Brett answering or just me answering, I think we're both going to kind of comment and and chip in a few things here and there. Uh, but here we go. This is Jake, uh, and uh, take it away.
2: Hey guys, Jake coming at you from Western Australia here. Really enjoyed the last podcast episode. It was, it was really thought provoking stuff. Um, I didn't have any issues or qualms with any of it really up until Brett. You said something to the effect of. In the new covenant, God's the only one actually doing anything. And this just struck me as odd because that reminded me of the the once saved, always saved doctrine where we say a prayer and accept God's gift and then we get to do whatever we want with the rest of our lives and I don't see that as being how it's
1: like actually is. All right, Brett. Go go ahead. So, I think what he's what he's saying is is that some of the things that I said during that episode maybe came across as um, God does all the saving he saves us, we accept it and then that's it that's that's how life is right Is that how you're understanding what he's saying? Sure yeah so. I think it could be misconstrued that way. Not that Jake actually misconstrued that. I don't think that he did. I think he's just, he's presenting something to me that I need to make a little bit more clear. And that is that I still stand by what I said that, God does all the saving and we did all the sinning. I think you can look at uh, Ephesians where uh, Paul goes through uh, a list of all these things uh, in the first couple chapters. If you look at all these verbs that happen, all the, all the action verbs, uh, all the positive action verbs are all of what God's doing and all the uh, the like two or three verbs that are attributed to us are all the negative things, like all the bad things that we're doing. So, we, we do not contribute anything to our salvation. It is all of work of what God is doing. Now, that does not mean that uh, we accept salvation and then we go on and do whatever we want to. Uh, If you want to go on the extreme of the once saved, always saved doctrine, right? Uh, You have to ask yourself or uh, this question about other people who, well, I prayed the prayer, you know, God did all the saving. I, I pray the prayer, and now I can go do whatever I want to, whether they're actually saved or not.
0: Right, and that's that's kind of where I wanted to to address it too. Is I I feel like there's sort of a misrepresentation here about the the belief that once you're saved, you're always saved. Like the assurance of salvation, once saved, always saved. Because he says, you know, you pray a prayer, and then you can just do whatever you want with the rest of your lives. I don't believe that that's how it is. I do believe in assurance of salvation, that you cannot lose your salvation after you've truly received uh, received it, but I don't believe that that's the, the way that it's represented here is the way that that is. And I think that there's abundant texts that, that assure me, uh, like when Jesus in John 10 says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, if no one's able to snatch them out of Jesus' hand, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, once they're in his hand, that means that I can't even snatch myself out of his hand. And and Paul in Romans 7 talks about, like, we, we've been given the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ, but we still have our old nature, and we still struggle with sin. And so if a person—I mean, my, my thinking on it is if a person— receives Christ and then just says, well, I can just go about doing whatever I want the rest of my life with no consequences, I don't think that person ever genuinely was saved
1: to begin with. They didn't really receive Christ. They they tried to accept the gifts of Christ, but you don't get the gifts without the lordship of Christ. Right. They didn't make Jesus Lord. Right. They just wanted all the benefits that come with them.
0: Right. All right, so let's move on to the the, uh, rest of what Jake has to say
2: here. I think we say a prayer, and then we make a choice to live for God and make a, a conscious decision to die to self every day. And, of course, when we fall away, there's grace, but we're not supposed to take advantage of that grace. We're supposed to live for Him daily and make a decision to live for Him for the rest of our lives.
0: And right here, I don't know if you have anything to add to this, Brett, but I just kind of wanted to jump in and say this one thing that uh, I agree with you 100% here, Jake, that uh, you know, uh, the, a choice has to be made in order to, to, to live for God. But um, I do want to add this one modifier that it's actually not us making that choice. It's the Holy Spirit in us. Like there's nothing good in and of myself where I can live for God. Anything good that Colin Schultz does that's God working through him and he's just a vessel so the decisions I make to, to live for to live for God and live for Christ if I'm making them in my own power they're the wrong choices but if God is uh, in me by the Holy Spirit and any and if I'm if anything good is coming out of what I'm saying or what I'm doing it's it's the Holy Spirit working through me
1: yeah and what you just said could be um... Confused a little bit for uh, us not having will of our own, like we do have a will of our own, right? It's just that the sin nature that we have uh, makes it so that the will that we have for ourselves, if it's left to just us, will not choose Christ every time, right? That our sin nature doesn't allow us to do that, and so that kind of gets into, and we don't, we're not going to unpack this right now, but this mysterious. Um, intersection of God's will and our will together, right? That there has to be a little something in us that maybe doesn't want Christ, but wants to want Christ, if you want to leave it like that. And then there's got to be this this part from God, the will to uh, grant us the ability to actually want Christ and to want him and to know him and to be in relationship with him. And that is confusing to people, that intersection of our will and God's will. And some people put more weight on one than the other. And really both of them have a have a play here. And it's one of those things um, that is just going to be uh, how that actually interacts with one, how they interact with one another is left up to God, right? Only he can really know how the two interact with one another. So, yeah, I think you're on the right track, Jake. But We just wanted to add in a little bit.
0: Okay, so then Jake goes on to say...
2: And I I think that's the difference between the New Covenant and uh, the covenants made in the Old Testament, like the Abrahamic Covenant. God promised Abraham an inheritance of descendants, a vast number of descendants, and the promised land in Canaan. And that wasn't going to be changed. That was just the deal. God was going to provide that. And I don't think that's the deal with the new covenant i don't like that term covenant for the new covenant because it it seems to me more like a contract that can be broken if we choose to break it if we choose not to follow after god anymore we don't have to that that can be changed we can accept that and then fall away i think and i i don't i don't know if that's scripturally or biblically correct but that's my uh, opinion on the issue and
1: okay so I was actually at church, we're recording this on a Sunday, I was at church this morning, and the sermon was on this, these two verses, Now, I just want to read them real quick. This is Matthew six, fourteen and 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Okay, so you're asking, Brett, what does that have to do with what we're talking about right now? I want to look at the order of the words. It says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. Now, I think this is starting to get at where Jake is coming from, where it makes it seem what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. It makes it seem like he's saying that if you do X, God will be faithful to do Y. For if you forgive others for their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. Okay, so there are statements that Jesus makes where it has this, this certain order. I think it's something that's implied that we might read into sometimes is that there is something that we have to do in order to get uh, something from God. And it, if you read it at face value, that is kind of what Jesus is saying. But I want to put it into the context of the entirety of Scripture. We can't just look at verse, uh, one verse at a time. And so these two verses by themselves make it seem as if this is a contract relationship. But if we look at the entirety of the New Testament and the entirety of the Bible, God is a God of covenants. And Jesus did—I mean, just think John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's the order. God gave that whosoever should believe. The believing comes after the giving. Which is more covenantal than it is contractual. So I think we have to we have to put all of the, these different scriptures, things that might indicate that this is a contract type of relationship, uh, into the uh, entirety of Scripture and see that God is a God of covenants. He doesn't change from old to New Testament, and that a a the best interpretation of this specific passage that I just read as like a case study um, for right now is that we forgive others not so that God can forgive, but so that we can accept the forgiveness that God has already offered to us. What do you think, Colin?
0: I want to say not only that God has offered to us, but that God has offered to them yeah, as well. Because I feel like a, a lot of the times we get hung up on Thinking, you know, maybe, oh, that person's sin is so bad. I don't know how God can forever, ever forgive that person. And maybe we need to spend a little bit of time looking in the mirror and think about all the ways that God has forgiven us uh, and the forgiveness that we need to accept uh, and realize that God is an amazing God who, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, he was there for all of our sins yours, mine, and Joe Blow down the street, whether or not Joe Blow accepts them. So just wanted to throw that in there.
1: Yeah. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to does faith plus works equal salvation? Or, and by works, I mean in this context that we're talking about right now, making that daily decision to die to self, or is it faith equals salvation Plus works. And in that case, works is fruit of salvation. You get salvation and works comes with it, right? The decision to daily die to self and live in Christ is an outpouring of salvation and not something that salvation is contingent upon.
0: And, you know, uh, I, I, you, you bring up the math equation there, and I just wanted to um, put in here that you, there's a great sermon uh, by J. Vernon McGee, uh, who he, he teaches on this subject, and he, he puts it this way, faith plus nothing equals salvation, but salvation is equivalent to works. Like uh, It's like Paul says in Ephesians, we were saved for good works. Mm-hmm. Uh, to 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 complete the good works that God has for us. that's that's all I wanted to say on that. I will give since this was addressing your comments, I will give you the last uh, last thing to say here.
1: I think Jake brings up some good points. We do have to reconcile our daily living after the the quote unquote choice that we make for Christ. We do have to reconcile that and say, is it fruit of salvation that was there before? Or is it a means towards salvation and then we can lose that? And one of them puts tremendous amount of pressure on us. If, if our works do play an effect towards our salvation, then that's a weight that we cannot bear. But if our works are the fruit and outpouring of salvation that's already been give, given to us well, then they can be true worship because we can't really give God anything except for the power that he's given us to do good works out of salvation, right? So one of them is really burdensome, and uh, the other one is freeing. But either way, if if good works are not present, then it is good works or daily dying to self. If If there is not progressive sanctification, there's something we can talk about later, but if there's not progressive sanctification happening, then most assuredly there was not salvation to begin with. Not that salvation was lost. Yeah,
0: I, I agree. All right, uh, so then Jake turns his comments to uh, what I had to say in that in that episode regarding tithing. So here we go.
2: Hey, Colin, really enjoyed your what you had to say about tithing. I'd actually been thinking some about this issue not too long back um, and you had some really thought-provoking points that you mentioned on and for me it's always been more about what Jesus talked about in the sowing and reaping parables he mentioned and there's a verse in Malachi 310 I won't read it but God basically challenges us to give and to to test him and see if he's not faithful to be generous when we're generous and so to me it's not about being obedient to the Old Testament law because I realize the Old Covenant was fulfilled and we're not we're not bound to follow those laws anymore but uh, to me it's about being generous and putting my money where my heart is
0: now, here I actually have a lot that I, I kind of want to address. So do, do you want to say anything regarding this?
1: Well, I'll let you start. I do have some thoughts, but uh, I don't want to step on your toes since it was addressed to you.
0: Okay. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, what, what he says here, um, he gives the reference to, to Malachi 3, uh, three verse ten, which I'm gonna, I I, I do want to spend some time addressing that text because that's one of the passages that I wanted to bring up in that thesis, but I just didn't have the time for. Uh, so I'm glad that we're gonna get to kind of hash that out. But there, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance for me, Jake, in, in what you're saying because I understand that you, you say you know most of it comes from wanting to put your money where your your heart is and um, the the parables that Jesus gave about uh, reaping and sowing, but then you you give this reference to Malachi, and you say your your views don't come from anything about fulfilling the Old Testament law, but Malachi is not actually um, addressed to us. It's not actually a challenge to us. Malachi, in its context, is addressed to the Jews who were under the Old Testament. So if that is even at all influencing. Your views about tithing, um, then, then it is in part, at least, influenced by the Old Testament laws, and this is why I kind of wanted to hash this out because this this passage, and and by the way, the the crux of my uh, thesis there wasn't necessarily about tithing per se. It was about proper handling of the word of God, and I feel that in order to teach the tithe the way that most churches teach it today it requires that they mishandle and misapply God's Word, and and I think that this passage in Malachi is is another example of that because what happens is church leaders commonly come to this passage and they isolate three verses, Malachi 3, uh, verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to read that here. It says, "...will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings." You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And some some translations say until you won't have room enough to contain it. And what happens is this passage is read and then... Uh, uh, church leaders will say, you see, if you don't give 10% of your income to the local church, you are straight up robbing God. And you're going to be cursed with a curse if you do that. But if you bring your 10% of your income to the church, you're going to be blessed with so much that you won't be able to contain it. And I know that most people who've been in churches for a while uh, have heard Malachi used this way. I've heard it used this way. But this is not the proper context of this passage. If we consider the elements of, of hermeneutically dissecting this passage, we have to ask the questions, wh- who, what, when, where, why? Uh, so who's involved here? Well, Malachi's the writer, and he's speaking to us, right? The church. No, he's not speaking to us. The church doesn't exist when Malachi's writing. If you turn back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, he says, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. He's speaking to the priests of Israel, the Levites. He's, and, and here in verse 9, he's speaking to the nation. In uh, verse 9 of chapter 3, he says the nation, and that's the nation Israel. So that's the who that's involved here. You see, the nation had been commanded in the Torah to bring the tithe of their crops to the priests, and the priests were responsible to properly use those crops as commanded to take care of the poor. And Nehemiah chapters 10 and 13 give some additional light to this, um, but there there were literal storehouses where the priests were to store the tithes. And what were those tithes? Again, we find it right there in verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. That there may be food, not money again, but food. And that's one of the things I talked about in that In that thesis, the biblical tithe was only ever food, and this this storehouse is not the local church. Again, this is where Nehemiah gives some clarity that there were literal storehouses where the food was to be kept so that it would be there for the poor and needy, and this book is written approximately in the 400s before Christ. So what we're dealing with here is old covenant Jews who were commanded to tithe of their crops, and that sheds some light onto the curse here, because God says you are cursed with a curse. Because he had told them in Deuteronomy 28 that if they obeyed his commands, that they would be blessed abundantly beyond measure. But if they disobeyed, that they would be cursed. And that's the why. So, this is, this is not the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is the Old Testament Sacrificial system. This is obeying the law of Moses. And the blessing that uh, he promises in Malachi, uh, it says that he will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And that phrase, floodgates or windows of heaven, should be familiar because that was the phrase that Moses had used in Genesis 7 to describe how the flood of Noah came about. He's talking about literal rain that if they obeyed the tithing of their crops, that they were going to have the rain that they needed to multiply their harvest in the land. And so the problem with applying this passage to giving of your income to the church today is that that context gets missed completely. This is not about Christians within the church tithing their income to pay the salaries contracted uh, for the clergy and and to pay for church buildings. This is about the priests of ancient Israel properly managing the crops that were tithed to them to make sure that the poor were were taken care of. But I, I think that the bigger problem is that when this is taught, churchgoers are made to feel one of either two things. They're made to feel that if they, number one, if they don't give their pastor 10% of their paycheck that they are cursed with a curse and that they are robbing God. And that's not what Malachi is saying. But then the other side is they are made to think that they are going to be overwhelmingly financially blessed if they do so. And that's also not what Malachi is saying. That is the prosperity gospel. That causes people to give out of greed, expecting material rewards in return. And, you know, again, I don't want to throw anybody's opinions on this into question. Like, if you feel that you are supposed to give of your income, 10% of, of it, to, to your local church, you feel that that's the way the Spirit's leading you, that's fine. The, the main point of my thesis was the proper handling of the Word of God. And I think that the way that the, the tithe is taught in churches today is not biblical, And it requires that they mishandle passages just like this one in Malachi.
1: And I think this ties in more than what we think to what we were just talking about, which is covenant and contract, where the Old Testament law is—God does make covenants with people in the Old Testament, right? But the Old Testament law is kind of like a contract in the way that there are certain rules that are supposed to happen and— God does things in return for that. Not that God can't, you know, God, despite Israel continuing to turn away from him, and here in this passage of Malachi, continuing to, quote unquote, rob him um, of what he's due according to this law contract kind of thing, despite that, he still works everything out to bring a savior to the whole world through this line, through this nation. Right, so there is covenant, but there is this contractual element to it, and so I want to con- I want to tie the two together now, where this this tithe is is a type of contract for these con- this specific people, I think is what Collins what you're trying to say, right? Sure. Yeah. In different words, right? And so whenever we then take this and move it into the new covenant, we are not under the law anymore. We are uh, Jesus has is the fulfillment of the law, and so we're not we're not bound by Old Testament law. I mean, there's moral law, but generally speaking, we're not bound by the Old Testament law anymore. So therefore, let's go back to this faith and works thing. If we wanted to find works as us giving our money, we now don't uh, give money in addition to our faith for salvation. Like it's one of those things. We now give money out of our salvation, and if anything, people should be working to be giving back to God uh, money, whether it be through local church or other ministries or or going out and feeding the poor and the needy or whatever, above and beyond 10 percent, because the work is done, and we can see it now, and we can we can see and feel what salvation is, and out of that, Hopefully, we're, we're wanting to get beyond a 10%, right? But where you place the tithe or where you place your giving in the equation, whether it's on the left side, which goes with faith, or on the right side, which is an outpouring of salvation, I think this is another case study that we see where giving should be out of our heart um, and be joyful, like Paul was saying, like we quoted last time.
0: So then Jake gets into this very interesting question um, that I, I, I really want us to kind of dive into and, and, um, and talk about here. So here it is.
2: I think if you can put your... If, if you can give God your money, you, you can give Him any other part of your life. And I don't necessarily agree with the idea that pastors and other church leaders can become massively wealthy off of the church's faithful giving. But I don't know of another way the 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 way the church is set up today that it could run and if you have any other ideas of how the modern day church could operate without people tithing and giving I'd love to hear suggestions and I know you talked about this, this issue of the church not really operating the way it was set up biblically and I really like your input on it so I'd love to hear more about what you have to say about that
1: um, yeah thanks guys Love, peace, and chicken grease. You know what I really love about that is that everything is on the table for us to discuss right now. Yeah. That uh, I think this is what the whole point of this program is for us to think through these things that we have taken for granted. And Jake, he says, you know, I don't see how things operate without this institution happening, right? But... Let's throw it all out there and and see what we think. So I just want to say that because I think this is a really cool question. But what do you think, Colin?
0: Yeah. Um, so there's – like I said, I, I think that this is really kind of the question that I really wanted us to unpack because this is – honestly, a lot of what we've been talking about this in this podcast, uh, how the, the way that the church runs in modern uh, – at least in the United States, the modern church system – is very far removed from the the church that we read about in the New Testament, and um, he he asks a very relevant and pertinent question of like how else is the church supposed to operate? Like we've been doing it this way for so long, how are we supposed to get back to a, a New Testament Christianity? And I think that that's a very valid question that all of us, uh, you know, you and me and ev- everyone out there listening, if you're if you are part of a church. This is a question that we really should seriously consider, and you know I don't know. I, I feel like we kind of have to take baby steps in order to in order to do this. One one thing that I will do is um, I'm going to recommend three books. Okay, uh, because there's there's a book that came out recently by a guy who used to be uh, a, a mega church pastor out in California. And he did some uh, some missions work overseas and kind of saw how the churches operated uh, in other places. And he came back and he, he kind of realized that he had it all wrong. And he actually left his megachurch and started a, a movement of house churches out in California. And I'm talking about a guy by the name of Francis Chan. He published a book uh, probably about six months ago called called Letters to the Churches, or Letters to the Church, I think. And he talks about this issue, and, and um, I think if you look at one of the things that they do, like if you look at his new house church movement, what does this church look like? And typically, it's a congregation of no more than 20 to 30 people, and they meet in homes. Um, the leadership is drawn out of the congregation. So there's there's always two men who are serving as elders and two who are being trained as future elders, uh, uh, so that when they get beyond that, you know, range of twenty to thirty, they're going to kind of branch out and start a n- another house church. But the pastors are almost invariably bivocational, meaning they pursue their own careers and pastor as they're able. And I think we talked about this in in um, what was it episode seventeen about the role of the pastor we're paying a salary to a person to to do all the christian living for us like a a pastor's job should be the 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 job roles that he has should be stuff that every christian has uh you know visiting with people ministering to other believers discipling making disciples it shouldn't just be we're going to let that guy handle you know all of that things uh, and we'll pay him a salary to do so, we all should actively be, be participating. All, sh- all of us should be doing those things. So in, in this kind of house church movement that Francis Chan started, the people who are part of the congregation, they're expected to do those things. And the pastor, you know, he does those things too. The The person who's in the role of pastor, he supports himself. He works with his own hands to support himself. And he does those things as he's able to as well. The leaders generally are not seminary educated because it's uh, seems to be growing at at such a speed that they, you know, they need new leaders right away. And compared to most churches, the worship services really have a deeper focus on scripture reading, on prayer, and the expression of each participant's uh, spiritual gift. And so that's that's kind of the first book I want to recommend. Um, there's also a a uh, book by Frank Viola uh, from about—actually, uh, it's Frank Viola and George Barna co-wrote a book called Pagan Christianity. And um, then there's a follow-up book to that, uh, which is called Organic Church, I believe. Um, and they, they kind of need to be—they they go hand in hand, because in the first one, they're kind of taking apart the traditions and showing how far removed they are from Scripture. And then in the second part, they're like, kind of drawing out of Scripture and and talking about what the church in the New Testament looked like and how we can kind of get back to that. So I, I think maybe a first baby step is for a church today to tell their their pastors, hey, you have to support yourself. We're not going to pay you a salary anymore. Or maybe we're going to pay you a reduced salary and you need to supplement that with your own your own income. You know, that's going to take away some time that you have dedicated to, to these roles, but we're going to expect our church members to to step in and and fill in on some of those roles. So that's just one idea I wanted to throw out there. I wanted to see uh, see what you think.
1: Yeah, I don't. Um, I think that's a little more than a baby step. To be honest, uh, I think that's that's a that's a grown man step to <laughs> to go into that. And I don't. I don't. And maybe this is something for us to consider talking about on a different episode. But I don't think that it's unbiblical to pay someone a full salary. I don't think that it's unbiblical to not pay them a full salary. I think the question at hand, and perhaps the best baby step, would be to um, to teach giving in our local churches. Teach the tithe, sure, because it's in the Bible, but don't misapply it to, to our context right now. And more generally, don't pretend that every statement in the Bible is directed towards us. It's not. It's not directed towards us in the sense that God was speaking straight to us and saying, we need to do this. He is speaking to us to say, here's my whole story. And it does fit together into one coherent theology and thought. But um, I'm not saying this one scripture specifically to you, even though it is wise for you to understand it in its context. I think that might be a better baby step. And then uh, uh, I respect Francis Chan a lot for what he's doing. I think it is a pendulum that's being swung completely in the opposite direction. And it might be a foundation uh, to build upon what can a local church look like with this type of, uh, this this house church type of um, thoughts about how church members interact with one another. So I left a lot of loose ends on that one, but I just wanted to push back a little bit on the salary thing uh, specifically. I don't th- I don't think it's unbiblical to pay someone a salary. I th- I think it's if a church has the means, it might even be wise because if they invest in someone to give them the time and resources to be able to study deep into the Word, then that person can turn around and then invest back into that church the ability to do that same thing, right? To be able to teach uh, them what they've learned, and uh, I think it uh, gets all of them closer to Jesus in the long run, perhaps.
0: Okay, so we're we're going to put a pin in that because yeah. uh, there's there's some things that uh, we'll probably draw out in a future episode. Yeah, um, and I, I just want to say like there's there is a big difference when when I examine the scripture, I, I do see people who are in leadership uh, receiving gifts of support, free will gifts of support from um, those that they are discipling. Uh, but I do want to say there's a big difference between free will gifts of support. And a contracted salary figure that you are under contract to receive. We're gonna put a pin in that.
1: Yeah, uh, there's so many more factors than just that. Right, sure.
0: Let's let's move on to uh, our next uh, bit of feedback here, which comes uh, from a listener named Jason, and here we go.
2: Brett, this is Jason Yates, a pastor in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. I appreciated your comments about covenant relationships in episode 16. And if I understood your thesis correctly, I'm curious to know how you got to the point where you applied the category of covenant to all relationships. We see God establishing covenant relationships with his people, and we talk about marriage being a covenant relationship, but rarely do I hear people use the covenantal category to describe other relationships like friend, parent, child, and church member, something I think you were doing in episode 16. So my question would be, is it overstretching to apply covenantal expectations to all relationships? All
1: right, Brett, he addressed you. Answer the man. Okay, so I think there's two things that we want to get through. So I'll go through one and see what, what you think about it, um, and then I'll go to the next one. The first one is applying, uh, and he didn't use the term that I used, and I used inherent uh, covenantal relationships and Whenever I talk about that, I was talking mostly about family. So to explain again kind of where I'm coming from, it is that uh, whenever you are born into a family, you have relationships that are built in to your life at that point. You did not do anything to receive that relationship, and the other person didn't do anything to, to, re- to receive that relationship from you. Uh, there's no contract between you there. It is inherently covenantal. Uh, they are always going to be some type of a relationship to you, whether you talk to them or not. There is some type of bond between you. And in that regard, it is covenantal. That is the relationship you have with family is not going to, going to be broken. Now, your, your speaking relationship or, or active, engaging relationship might be broken, but you're still tied to that person no matter what. And I think it's inside of that inherent covenantal relationship that uh, some of our deepest bonds with people are built because from the very beginning of that relationship, there was no contract or expectation that was set up between you. Now, you might have a pl- misappropri- or like misapplied Uh, expectations onto that. But at its foundation, there's no expectation. You are always going to be son or you are always going to be wife uh, after you make that choice, or you are always going to be um, a daughter to so-and-so because that's how you were born uh, into the world and into that relationship with them. So in that way, those type of relationships are covenantal. So I don't think I'm stretching whenever I uh, apply that. I think it's just a different way of uh, thinking about our family relationships. What do you think?
0: Honestly, I have to respectfully disagree. I I, I kind of agree with Jason that this is sort of sort of an overstretch, um, which kind of was one of the things that I, I was talking about in the cross check, where uh, you know the, those relationships, n- neither party really does anything to enter into like your brother and sister neither one of you did anything to to create a covenant relationship with one another and the covenants in Scripture it's always uh, you know God is moving and God is doing something and so I, I don't see that there's a covenant that's been established and that's not that's not a bad thing like family relationships I, I don't think that we need to have a covenant relationship in order to have those deep bonds and deep connections um, but even even in Scripture like God made a covenant with Abraham he didn't make no covenant with Abimelech. He made his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't make a covenant with Abraham and Ishmael and Esau. There was no covenant with Esau and Ishmael. Like the 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 there's still a relationship there. Like God still said to uh to Hagar, I'm still going to turn H- Ishmael into a great nation, but he ain't part of my covenant. Like my covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I, I don't think that that covenant is a, is a precursor, a, a necessary um, requirement to, uh, to having those deep relationships. And, you know, I, I feel like that's part of the great part about this episode is, like, you and I, we agree on most things, but we don't agree 100% on everything. Yeah. And uh, we can still have polite and uh, uh, amicable discussions. And the listeners out there probably don't agree with— a lot of the stuff I've said. (laughs) you know, (laughs) But hopefully you're still listening and not uh, driving angrily in your car right now or whatever. But I just, you know, I I kind of agree with what Jason said there. And um, I I think that that's part of the beautiful thing about this program is it makes it okay to ask questions, to have these discussions and to, you know, uh, politely disagree sometimes.
1: Yeah. And I think I can bridge a gap between us on this by saying that I do agree that the like these inherent covenantal relationships that I think, uh, if we approach them like this, they don't have like a promise that comes with it, right? The covenants of God come with promises uh, that God is going to fulfill uh, his part of the covenant, right? I think what i'm what I'm trying to get to is that there doesn't have to be, two promises on both sides of this relationship for there to be intimacy Intimacy, and whenever we approach relationships with not no expectation but very little expectation, especially not some kind of contract, contractual expectation, that that is where intimacy can actually be achieved, whether it's in our family relationships where we already have some kind of bond to one another or uh, in like having really close best friends that knowing that no matter what I do, this other person is going to be there. They don't have to agree with it, but they're still going to be there. I can be myself with them, and we can actually be intimate with one another instead of it being contractual where I think that that intimacy starts to tear down. All right. This was an awesome episode, Brett. Yeah. I got to say, We could man. do more of these, but the listeners have to send us in Questions?
0: Yes, questions, comments, concerns, death threats. Uh, send those all to us at doublecheckpodcast at gmail We can get you on the air uh, as well, just like we did for Jason and Jake today. And I think that did the two listeners. I, I want to send especially a thank you to to both of them. These were great questions and great triple checks on us. Yeah,
1: two great uh, brothers in Christ who love the Lord immensely. And uh, they don't necessarily agree with all we have to say. and We don't agree with one another. But you know what we do agree on? Christ.
0: Jesus is Lord. Yeah, Amen. that's right. And as long as we agree on that, we can have fellowship and uh, we can be brothers in Christ. That's right. Which is a covenantal relationship. I will, I will say that that is for there sure part of the new covenant. But yeah, any final thoughts before we wrap it up here, Brett?
1: No, uh, just send in those questions, comments. Uh, and, uh, we will see you in the next episode.
0: And because you said, see you in the next episode, that was the key phrase. That means our episode has concluded. We want to thank you for listening. Make sure you rate us, review us, give us five stars and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. See ya.